Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. Have you considered grad school but heard horror stories from radical BIPOC activists about staggering debt, apathetic environments, and microaggressions, let alone macroaggressions? For folks considering having anything to do with the academic-industrial complex, this dialogue may support your doing so in as liberatory and as harm-reductionist of a way as possible. I particularly wanted to ask Dr. Prado onto the show to talk about radical, queer, poor, BIPOC engagement with grad school because she did it magnificently well compared to literally thousands of grad students that I've worked with. Scoring as much free money as possible, sharing funds, being super strategic, doing it explicitly with and for the community, and not buying into some imposter syndrome that would have us dependent on an institutional affiliation to feel legitimate, smart, or worthy. Let's have a listen to hear how this radical feminist navigated her PhD program from beginning to end. Dr. Carolina Parado is a queer, first-generation Chicana who grew up in Southern California. She recently completed her PhD at UC Berkeley in environmental science, policy, and management, doing research on environmental justice movements at the U.S.-Mexico border and community participation in border environmental governance. Carolina has been active in environmental justice advocacy and activism for seven years with the Chilpan Single Collective for Environmental Justice in Tijuana, Mexico. Right now, she's working as an environmental scientist at the Environmental Health Coalition in San Diego, California, on a community-based air monitoring project and a participatory mapping project on environmental justice in Tijuana. Outside of her environmental justice work, she participates in food justice work, advancing the goals of Zapatismo, and working as a bilingual domestic violence counselor. I also have to add that Carolina is a former student of mine from an introductory level women's studies course at San Diego State University almost a decade ago. 
So it's especially a treat for me to have her on the show. So welcome, Caro. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. How are you doing today? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's been a great day watching people's uh, for Christopher Columbus posts. Thank you. I know. <laughs> so encouraging, right? You're like, yes, this is a great day. <laughs> Thank you. Give thanks for sure. Yeah. Uh, so part of the point of this show for me, today's episode anyways, is for folks that are considering having anything to do with the academic industrial complex to do so in as liberatory and for real in as harm reductionistic of a way as possible. Uh, You just recently finished your PhD at Cal at Berkeley. And so to get the dialogue going, uh, I'm curious to know, why did you decide to go to grad school to begin with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a funny question because in a lot of ways it, just happened to be that I, like I always tell people this and they laugh at me, but I I was kind of broke at that time and <laughs> I had applied to grad school and the grad schools I applied to offered me funding. So I think to me that was really kind of like the, like what tipped me over to going um, to grad school. But I did also, um, I had done this community-based project with the Colectivo for a year in 2010. And part of the goals of that was to, do these group interviews to kind of give um, like material for a book that the that somebody at um, the Environmental Health Coalition wanted to write about this uh, big industrial waste site site case um, that the Colectivo had won. So they were kind of like, you know, this would be a good way for you to contribute is to do these interviews um, that will go into the book. And I had applied to grad school mostly because I was interested in doing like this type of research, but I wasn't sure if I was going to continue that project because it didn't seem like that from the Colectivo's um, part. But um, by the time that I got accepted to programs, that person who was going to write the book kind of retired. So then they didn't really want to write the book anymore. And so then um, when I told folks that I got accepted to grad school, they were like, you should go to grad school and finish this project. Um, So then the confluence of both the fact that I wouldn't be going into debt and I'd be getting paid when I had like no money. <laughs> um, and also the fact that they were down and excited for me to continue this project. That really was kind of how I went forward. Um, even though lots of people that I knew, including you, were like, you should take a break between undergrad and um, PhD. But at that point, I was like, well, uh, this is a way for me to have some money. <laughs> and there's a reason why I would be doing it, right? Which is you know, continuing this project that I was doing. So that was kind of like the the perfect storm or whatever of me <laughs> going into grad school. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, thank you so much for naming that, again, it wasn't an individual decision on your part, that a community-based organization you had already been working with, right, and organizers in community that you already had a relationship with actually advocated that intentionally and strategically to be able to further the work that they were doing. Um, So to name, right, that strategic element, because that's something that is so often left out of more individualistic conversations about what it might mean for one person to go to grad school. So thank you for naming that piece in particular. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what some of that back and forth was like with the Colectivo, with people that you were working with on the ground? So again, moving beyond like you just as an individual in your head weighing pros and cons, um, but some of what that process was like in community this whole time. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the initial kind of me trying to work with them was this pretty, like, 
direct in that I just met with one of the, one of the people uh, who is an organizer. Her name's Magdalena Cerda. She's like a longtime mentor of mine. And I kind of was just like, I heard you did this stuff. I went on a tour of um, Tijuana, like a toxic tour of Tijuana. And I heard you speak and I want to contribute in some way to what you all are doing. And I'm also doing this like thesis project. Is there like some way to meet those two things? And, you know, she, that's kind of, that's where the whole project of like, actually, yeah, we're writing this book and it would be great if you did a whole series of research or like of interview questions and did, so I did like six or seven group interviews about all kinds of different stuff, like basically about the history of this case, um, of this toxic waste site. And then at the time that I was applying to grad school, I, I mean, I was there like all, every week at the, at the meeting. So I told them like, yeah, I got accepted to this program. And they asked me a lot of questions about what the hell a PhD program was. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I mean, basically I applied because I want to be a professor one day and I mean, they got that, right? Like, yeah, a teacher. Like, I get it. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, so to, in order to do that, I have to do a project, and it has to look like this. And um, and they, you know, like at that point, they already knew this other person wasn't writing the book. So they kind of said, you know, we, we want you to write about the history of this case. And, like, it, at that point, I also already knew that whatever I'd be writing wouldn't be just a history of the case. So I was like, well, you know, I'll have to probably do a bunch of interviews that will talk about other kind of, like, theories or whatever. And they were like, yeah, well, as long as you write what we ask you to write, you know, like, <laughs> um, in terms of, like, it, is, it didn't have to be the actual academic work, but, like, other pieces of writing that would kind of document the work that they've been doing, um, like, in different pieces, right? It wasn't going to be, like, a huge book, but being like, oh, this is how this uh, campaign worked and this is what we did. And, you know, mainly that what they wanted was, for the this history not to be written from the government's perspective because that was kind of one of the projects that was underway was that they were going to write a history about this case but like the from the federal government and so they were like they're going to erase us you know from this um from like the work of this case and so their their main goal with this was that they would have a way for their work to be documented um and like the whole time since I've started grad school like I've been going to their meetings all the time. And when I was writing my dissertation, I was there like every month talking to them about like what chapter I was writing and what I was saying. And, you know, they like a lot of the times they corrected me and were like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you know, or like, yeah, I really like that. Or that doesn't, I, or, you know, some things that were like, that doesn't make sense to me, but whatever, you know, like, <laughs> like if that's the kind of theory you have to work on, that's fine because the pieces that we want to be in there are there, you know? Um, and so, and you know, like throughout the time, the this period of time, there's also been other writing that I've done for them that has nothing to do with my dissertation. So that was kind of like also the understanding of reciprocity in there was like, you're we're working with you and it like has to go both ways. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like how the agreement kind of came about, right? Was that they were like, well, that's cool that you're doing that. Some of that is not relevant to us, but some of it is. So like, let's do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. Thank you. Uh, And you also touched upon the money piece, right? So that's something I would love for us to get into also. One, just because we need to be talking about money more immediately in this society, specifically financial literacy in ways that aren't super individualistic and capitalist, um, but getting real about... Uh, debt and avoiding debt to the fullest extent possible that right we in our families and communities can and especially in doing this kind of work should we choose to do the work if we feel like if and when it is indeed appropriate for folks say to go to grad school and so can you talk a little bit about 
the role that money played in your decision-making process? For example, were you willing to go into debt to go to grad school? Uh, or how did you understand the combination of those two things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt like at the when when my applications were already in, I kind of went into this mode of like, I'm, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do next because I'm not going into grad school if I have to pay anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of assumed that I wouldn't be getting any money because I was like, well, you know, like the whole, like, you don't really have, sometimes you don't have the idea that, like the work that you're doing or like whatever, however you look like on paper is really going to resonate with other people. So I kind of figured like, well, I'm, if I get in, they'll probably like, not give me any funding so I had already kind of walked along the path of like anyway let's see what we'll do you know after I graduate I mean yeah after I graduate and applied so when the whole when the decisions came and they came with money that's when I was like whoa like this kind of changes things because I have no money now you know like at that period I was like working like 10 hours a week and I couldn't really find a job and I had already graduated and stuff so I was kind of like well either I keep working in this job, which I liked, you know, it was also like education work, but, or I go to grad school and get money. And, you know, a lot of the, the people that I've met in grad school have been really like, oh, like we're so poor as students. But to me, making $20,000 a year was like, I was rich, you know, like I was like, <laughs> dang, I'm going to like start a savings account. And, you know, I was like, I'm going to start a savings account and buy myself a bicycle. Like I was like, this is bank, you know? And I, I didn't, um, I never, I, I honestly, I thought about it and I was like, if I at one point lose, fun, like run out of funding, I'm probably just going to take a break until I get funding again because I don't want to have, I like literally just don't have money to go into debt or mm-hmm. neither does my family, you know, like my family right. doesn't have savings, Thank you. like they're working class, they don't have a retirement. So I'm not going to like go further down like the, the scariness of like finances mm-hmm. to be in, in a program like. It, it like even even if at the end of it you're coming out with a PhD in your hand or whatever like I I can't I like just literally can't you know mm-hmm. go into debt Thank you. so that was something that for me I, I didn't really see as an option just like in terms of I mean I didn't even have a credit card until like a couple of years <laughs> after I started my PhD program because I was mm-hmm. like what will I do if I have debt I'll die you know like what, sure. how will I pay you know uh-huh. um, and so you know my family like my parents are migrants so like in like, their conception of debt is, like, that's, like, some life, you know, like, mm-hmm. people, like, get, like, shot and stuff for being yeah. in debt. So, Thank like, you. I just don't want, I don't want that, you know, in my life. So, mm-hmm. um, and I also, like, I think I had, I had enough mentorship. Like, I was in this uh, femtorship program uh, for Chicana, Latina, Indigenous students at San Diego State with uh, Dr. Irene Lara. And I think that I had enough, like, radical readings from like women of color and Mm -hmm. just a lot of critical perspectives to know that like people of color in the academy like if they want to like parade us around as like the diversity students or whatever that they need (laughs) to fucking pay you know that's right like I already kind of had the idea of like it like I deserve to get funding you know to go to school Mm -hmm. um and so I didn't, I, I definitely didn't see like debt or taking out loans as like an option for like both of those reasons, you know, like mm-hmm. literally not being able to and also being like, you know, this is part of this is a little bit of reparations, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, especially looking at the ways in which the academy has ripped off a lot of like my ancestors and mm-hmm. the ancestors of people all over the world. So thank you. 
anyway yeah yeah no that's great and thank you for again kind of flipping the script around to that like who has the privilege to be going into debt to begin with the kind of presumption that what like you're just gonna have a job on the other end of things like that job security for many of our fields anyways if it ever existed definitely doesn't exist now and so getting real about that for folks again that don't have say family members or spousal support that you can just assume are gonna help you pay that off uh, mm -hmm. and then really right inviting in our movement spaces us to take seriously right if we're not just viewing our lives in these little individualistic vacuums what are we going to do with all of the debt that we have right and we can put that in conversation with right the prison nation that we're in right now maybe right there are not debtors jails right now but do you know how that how quickly that could shift especially in a state like california with all of those prison beds and with how quick right legislators are to jump on supporting right private prison industry as right a form of income for some of their buddies and so just really being as realistic as possible about uh the kind of future that we're setting ourselves up for both individually either say having to get shitty jobs to be able to pay back this debt for mm -hmm. folks that choose to take that on because they've told a certain story about grad school being worthwhile uh, or, right, not being able to pay it back, and then what are the ramifications of that? And for folks that do get those gigs, right, that are so often soul-sucking just to be able to pay their debt back, then what time and energy is that that we're not devoting to getting free just because we're paying off this debt, right? Yeah, and I, and I totally, yeah, I resonate a lot with that because I remember that one of the things that has stuck with me a lot is that I, at some point in my undergraduate time at San Diego State, I don't know who it was really, but I... I heard like an elder, like a senora, um, who was like, oh, you know, like back in the 60s, like we used to do it like someone would pay all the rent and then or pay most of the rent. And then all the other people who lived in the house would just organize full time and, right. you know, That's contribute right. to food or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing he say that and being like, if I ever have access to that kind of resources, like I want to do that. Like that's a dream mm -hmm. of mine, you know? Thank and you. I remember, and in this whole project of like getting a PT to be a professor and like make more money than other people or whatever, like if I'm going to, if I'm going to go down that right route, I better have the like means to share that instead of be paying off debt for the rest of my life, you know? Mm -hmm. So like to me, it was like, it wasn't really strategic to, to get towards that level of having more earning power or whatever people call it. And then spend most of that, paying back debt you know like if part of my goal was like I want to be able to have the resources to share them so mm -hmm. that for this a collective process of building shit up you know or tearing the right things down whatever but you know like the resources that it takes to like stay alive you know like for and not just for myself but like my family like the people who are like who I organize with all this shit and like if I have to spend not just the time that you're saying like about of being able to pay back but you know, those resources that were meant to go towards um, collective building or, you know, like it's not, they're just not going to be there. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've so much appreciated about observing your process in grad school over the years is, for example, you know, for folks that are at institutions where they do get funding, like at Cal or maybe like in certain departments or in certain fields, because, of course, funding varies by our field for sure. Uh, you know, if you go to a conference, kicking down whatever space there is in the room for colleagues that might not be as well funded to be able to open up access on those fronts, too. Um, so mm -hmm. us, exactly like you're saying, that movement elder shared getting really strategic about how we can 
pool our resources together and be very intentional and leverage our limited resources to be able to do whatever the thing is that we're building towards instead of just not talking about money like we've been told to, who and what benefits from that, who and what doesn't benefit from that, um, and then maybe hoarding right from some fear-based position, which definitely isn't benefiting us collectively either, um, but really initiating dialogues to be in a place to be able to do something differently around all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like the idea that if you have things, like you need to share them, right? And to me, that's like that. That very much comes from like being raised by immigrants, right? Where it's like if you have a house and you have a couch, and someone needs a place to stay because they just got here, you're gonna. It doesn't matter, you know, like mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. is going on. Like you better offer that. Thank so you. to me, it's like you know, being able to access the resources of like that the academy gives in whatever shape or form they are. Like there, you need to share them. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Because not everybody has access to them. And most people, like, it's on purpose meant so that most people are not, don't have access to them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So you decided to go to grad school then. So what are some of the things for you personally that got you through grad school, especially when it was particularly challenging? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the one one thing that I always tell, like, the, the students that I've, like, mentored and all this stuff is, like, you really need to find a place where you have an advisor that's like an ally to you and not just going to question you all the time about like, what are you spending all your minutes doing? Or, you know, not that my advisor didn't do that, but someone who asks you what kind of support you need and then does that, you know, like, because I think a lot of people's advisors either are like non-existent or they're just kind of honestly oppressive. And I had like the, I feel like I had like the luck of having an advisor that like, takes that role of being supportive really seriously, you know, where like, she's like, if you need me to speak up for you, then I'll do that. And if not, then I'll just like, you know, like I'll step aside. And I think that that's something that has really helped me through through grad school and a lot of the times where, especially like bureaucratic stuff has been super stressful and racist, honestly, but being able to like have an advisor that I'll like email, like this is what happened and that she'll like call and yell at someone or whatever, you know, and like part of that has to do with the fact that she's, privilege you know like and she uses that in the in being able to support her students and especially her students of color you know being like hello like why are you doing this um so I think that was one of the things that was really like lucky of me I don't think I really did anything to deserve that but it was just like that was pretty awesome you know that I got the chance to work with her um I think the other thing too is being really I I know like I've, I've gone through I went back and forth about this for so long because I I felt like in a lot of ways I had to be, you know, like social and network with all the people in my department and basically like the grad student community or whatever, because these are your former colleagues. But honestly, like, I feel like for myself, something that really like saved me a lot of energy and honestly, just like strife was to put a pretty like hard boundary between myself and um, the kind of like academic social sphere. Part of it was because so much of that kind of social life is centered around drinking and I'm just like not about that life. Thank you. Um, And also because, you know, like a lot of the times that I spent doing this like networking, I would come out of there being like really upset and when I would go home and reflect about it, I'd be like, whoa, like I didn't really realize all those microaggressions that I was trying to just like, you know, wave past because I was like, I'm trying to, you know, like get to know my cohort mates or the people in my department or whatever. But it was just pretty exhausting, you know? So I feel like I, I did, like, my one of my survival tactics was to, like, take a lot of steps back from that. 
Um, and I know other people who really enjoy that, that part of being in grad school, but I honestly just could not. So I, you know, like, it's not like I didn't go to anything, but I think having like a pretty good balance of most of the time sitting them out was actually pretty like safe for me. Um, because I, I, there's just so many like cultural, I just like think to me that the biggest part of grad school that was difficult was the cultural shock of being around a lot of people who are from a way different class than I am. You know, like, of course, there's a lot more white folks, which, you know, there's already, like, a, a cultural difference there with, like, people assuming that they can speak Spanish to you and, like, asking you personal oh, questions about your family's migration history and all kinds stop, of shit like that. no. <laughs> I know. But also just class shit, you know, where I'm just, like, I don't understand what you guys are talking about or, you know, all these idioms that I think once we talked about that, right? Like the, right. all the idioms that people use and I'd be like, what the hell are you saying? You know, like <laughs> I'm like English is my second language. I don't know what that is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like not, you know, like not just catching up in terms of like academic and theory and stuff, but also about what people are talking about, even like in how they talk or the experiences that they base their like thinking on, you know, it's just such a like hard, a weird gap to navigate. Um, so I think that in terms of that too, I think another piece of my survival was having like my community and especially, specifically my home be outside of academia. Like I, I already knew from having lived really close to San Diego state when I was an undergrad, like, I don't want to live close to school. Like I don't want to live with other students. Like I want my community to be people who have their like feet in something else, you know? And, like, I lived with some students when I first went to grad school, but there were also other people who were not students and who were, like, working in nonprofits or working as social workers, you know, and that kind of stuff. Like, when you come home and you're like, oh, like, somebody shut down my idea about this book we read this week. And someone's (laughs) like, yeah, you know, when my housemate's like, yeah, I had to, like, go with my client to court because her husband is, like, trying to take custody away from her kid because she, like, uh, reported his domestic violence. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, I guess this doesn't really matter, you know, not that, not the academic work is like, it doesn't matter at all, but it just puts it in perspective about like, I need to, I need to tone it down, like with how much stress I'm putting on myself about this, because at the end of the day, there's other shit going on that are important as fuck, you know, Mm -hmm. and it also reminded me like, I'm not here to like delve into this world of like the intellectual life. I'm here for a reason, you know, like, and I'm going to finish that reason and be done with this. Um, and I think that that's something that is, that also kind of like kept me through was like, well, I know, I know who I'm like accountable to in a way, you know, like in terms of my projects and even in the times when like classes were really hard and again, like all these like social weirdness and like racist shit that I would hear and stuff. Like, I still think that the, the reminder of like, well, there's a group of people that I'm actually in conversation with, you know, like about these ideas that whom I really respect, like that kind of reminded me of like, oh, well, like I'm cool, you know, like I'm cool with whatever's going on on this other side of um, the academic work. So like it kind of helped me like shift through the like bullshit, you know, Mm -hmm. of academic work and academic like social relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, keeping it real and staying focused, eye on the prize, so to speak, on what's actually important so then you don't get caught up wasting time or energy unintentionally on that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, on that front, I'm wondering how you understand your relationship with the academic industrial complex. So you were talking really strategically about right getting what you needed, not over investing just because of peer pressure, because people were around you, say, going to socials or something, doing something that you wouldn't normally do, like just drinking, which is got a whole lot to do with campus culture in so many spaces that's totally culturally irrelevant or problematic for a lot of us, let alone just biologically for our bodies, of course, for everyone. Uh, but yeah, more broadly, how do you understand your relationship with academia, particularly now that you've graduated? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing about the alcohol is interesting in terms of like that whole relationship, because it was like, it's not like I, I'm not like straight edge or anything like that. I, mm -hmm. I don't drink very much, but I think to me, the, the idea about drinking around people who I don't consider like. I'm completely safe around was like out of this world. I'm like, I'm not going to drink around, you know, like Thank you. folks who like ask me weird questions and not that everybody was like that, but some people definitely were. So mm -hmm. I was just like, I don't, I don't know why I would consider drinking in this situation, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, I think that, um, in terms of my relationship with the Academy, it's kind of like that where I kind of have from the beginning been like, this is my relationship to the Academy. This is where I work. You know, like I don't, I don't see it as my home, like not my like physical home. I when I would do work, I hardly ever did it on campus. Like I don't I don't see it as my intellectual home. I don't see it as like my social home. Like most of my social relationships are outside of the academy. One of my best friends is also a grad student, but you know, like there's like a limited circle of friends that I that I like would call consider my close friends um, from the academy. And I just I think that to me. Um, like uh, Carolyn Finney, who's one who was one of my advisors at Berkeley, um, whose like den tenure denial was like such a shit show in my department and really fucked up. Um, but she, I heard her say once, like, "Oh, whenever people call me an academic, I always correct them. Like mm -hmm. I say, like, actually, I'm not an academic. I work in the academy. That's you know, right. and, and to me, that's that's the kind of relationship I feel like I've had throughout my graduate school life, and now that I'm. Um, that I've graduated, I also feel that way. Like I like work in the academy, but that I'm not an academic. Like I don't, I don't base like my identity on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the way that I see it is that I, um, I see the, uh, the value and the strategicness and being able to, um, excuse me, to like, you know, because of the, I mean, it's, it's so like, it goes in a circle, right? Cause it's like, it's not like it shouldn't be the way this way that um, the work that people do need to be validated in an academic, like through the academy or through like some institutional power. But in some ways or the other, like that, that kind of work matters. Right. So like even in stuff like um, like right now that I'm working on a nonprofit, even even around funding. So like being able to have the money to pay for the rent of an office having things like academic articles written about your work, that, sh that shit is like literal currency, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just, I think that in that way, like that was my relationship. Like if I can do anything to kick down resources in, in any way that they can, because of like my positionality and the access that I can have, then I, this is my relationship to uh, being able to be in this space. Um, and like, yeah, like I've, I've definitely enjoyed the work of, being a student and writing and like being able to like spend time reading books and like I'm getting paid for that. That's like, 
<laughs> pretty, you know, like that's like privilege right there is like, right. I'm reading a book and I'm getting paid for it kind of situation, you know? <laughs> um, like that's, yeah, like that's a huge, yeah, I think privilege is a word for it, but I think that, um, yeah, like in terms of now that I've graduated, it's, it's interesting because I'm in this place where I'm working at a nonprofit doing research, but research that's like completely dependent upon the community, the two communities that I'm working with right now. So it's like, they're like, we want to get this done. So this is like the data that we need for that, you know, to like present the city council or whatever. So it's very much like a very direct, like, I'm not, I'm not like doing it in the, like through a methodology that's going to give me a dissertation, you know? So it's like very different in the structure. Um, and I'm also like trying to figure out whether, this is the kind of work that I want to be doing or I also just really like teaching and I I don't know how much of that I'll be able to do through this kind of work but then there's so much popular education that goes into this kind of work like to get people to like participate in a project like we're doing like an air monitoring project inside people's homes so in order for them to want to participate it's like basically you're you're teaching a class about air pollution and what particulate matter means you know like so it's it's education in its own way, but um, so I'm kind of trying to figure out like, do I want to even be involved in in the academy, like doing the work of like when I think about it strategically, like the hours that I have to spend of my life doing the kinds of things that I think that politically don't align with my values. I'm just like I don't know if that's where I want to go. You mm-hmm. know, like I I appreciate the teaching part of it, but a lot of the other things that have to do with like you know publish or perish kind of situation and a lot of the service work especially that gets like pushed on to people of color like in diversity committees and all this stuff of basically like doing the work of informing white folks how to treat people of color in the academy like these kind of things just like give like in Spanish it's called like hueva like I just like I don't want I don't know if I want to spend my hours my waking hours you know like doing that kind of stuff so I don't know, but, you know, like, all all of these sectors that we're, like, programmed to think are options are, they all have, like, all these downfalls that are, you know, like, taking your time, you know, that you could be using to organize. So, I don't know. I I still am, like, in a really murky place about what my relationship is to the academy. I do, what I do know is what I've always known is that, I mean, it's not my home. It's, like, a a place of work. It's, like, where I, um, a way in which I strategize for the goals that I have for the for my life in the world, you know, um, but I I don't necessarily feel like this is where I need to be, mm-hmm. forever, you know, for sure. We break momentarily from this interview with Dr. Carolina Prado to hear her band Las Napatleras perform their song Cuatlique State. Their band derives its name from the state of Nepantla, which you can learn more about from the writings of Gloria Anzaldúa, especially her essay, Now Let Us Shift. Enjoy. Cuatrique en las estrellas, ofrecemos la canción. Es la diosa de la muerte, de la vida y transformación. Mirando profundamente 
kind of talking about self-care a little bit get quite as much yet into political persecution right the lived experience of unapologetic radicals or say folks doing decolonial work having to deal with the academic industrial complex um, and so on that front do you want to talk a little bit about whether it is suppression censorship, right, gatekeeping in terms of what does and doesn't count as knowledge um, and your sort of self and community care practice around that, because I know a lot of our community, um, right, of course, have been brainwashed to think that the academy actually monopolizes uh, epistemological legitimacy. And so what was your sort of experience of navigating that as an organizer, as a radical, let alone in all of the other ways based upon our identities that we might be oppressed and that we might already be subjugated minoritized, marginalized within the academic industrial complex? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because in some ways I feel like my experience in my department at my school wasn't so much like that. And mostly because uh, the the uh, division of my, so my department has like uh, like ecologists and biologists and then there's like the social scientists. So my division was like, very much like a vocal like division of feminists who like uh who's like some of the research was about like uh like indigenous and feminist approaches to science and to knowledge production other people who do like participatory uh research as kind of like their field so it wasn't like my i think the reason part of the reason why i was accepted even though they told me that they didn't really accept people straight from undergrad was that I had a project. I already had people that I was working with on that project and that there was goals already. So I think that they like this part of the department has a very strong vision of 
like community-based work and taking other knowledges seriously is important. Like my advisor wrote a book about, I mean, an article about where the missing co-authors are, about how people basically steal other people's uh, knowledge because they have more like authority, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, um, that in my specific case, like I didn't see a lot of that in my, with my advisors or um, in my department at all, because they, they already kind of had this, that was already a part of the, the, the vision's vision, you know? Um, but I, I do think that, like, in terms of being in conversation, because my, my project, like, at the end of the day, ended up also having, like, government folks as uh, people that I interviewed. And I think that in that in that way, I had a lot of, like, of times where I was like, ah, like, what is he saying? You know, like, kind of <laughs> moments about the ways in which especially, you know, and, and it's not surprising, like, of course government people are invested in delegitimizing the knowledge, especially of women of color and like homemakers and shit. Like they, they have an investment in that. But I think that that was like the, the points in time where I had to be like, well, I don't, I don't think that they're taking that out of nowhere. You know, like they would say things like, Oh, they're just making this stuff up about air pollution. And you know, and I'd be like, I don't know. I actually, they're not, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that was kind of like the places where I, I, I did feel like that push of, like a delegitimization of knowledge and not so much like in my own with my own advisors in terms of like the overall field of like you know presenting my papers and that sort of thing I think that there's definitely some spaces that I've been in the academy where people just kind of maybe they just don't want to be rude or something but they hear you and then they just kind of like look at each other weird and then clap you know like I, it's more it's been more kind of like you know like subversive disapproval than really people being like why are you even talking to these people or anything like that? So um, I think like specifically in that case, it's been, you know, like it hasn't been really that big of a deal. I think in terms of my department at large, being a radical feminist has been a thing, you know, like, cause you know, there's a lot of people in my department who are, you know, like scientists with a capital S and, you know, like <laughs> take, take a lot of shit, especially having to do with like gendered violence, for example, like as jokes. And I think that that's been where I've, like, gotten into, like, fights with people and, like, where people have, like, said a bunch of bullshit about me or, mm. you know, like, at one point there was, like, a, a thing about me posting an ad for my house and my department and I wrote that we were anti-Zionists mm. and so many people in my department came at me about it and I was like, Stop. I'm not, and I honestly, I didn't even respond because I was like, I don't care. Like, this yeah, isn't, thank you. Like, this isn't a discussion if that's you don't right. want to live in an anti-Zionist house. Don't apply. Just like leave me alone. Thank you. Um, And other, luckily, other people who also like, even some people who don't necessarily identify as anti-Zionist, but are like, what the hell? Like you, what you all saying is just not true. Um, Other people responded, and I I thought that was pretty interesting because it was people that I didn't expect to. But Mm. that was one of the times where I was just like, wow, there's a lot of like intensity going on with people who you know have politics, specifically anti-Zionist politics, Mm -hmm. and. like in academic spaces, and some of what people wrote me were like, "How unprofessional that you would write." <laughs> These are your colleagues, and I was like, "I'm sorry, but I don't have you know like if you're my colleague and you feel like there's no oppression or colonization going on in Israel Palestine, I will tell you. It doesn't matter if you're my colleague or not. You know, like that's right. I, it's just like the truth. Thank you. Know, you. Like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you other than that. Right. So, um, yeah, that's kind of like the the more of like the, again like the social kind of relationships of like my peers 
where I've gotten that kind of pushback, but not so much like from my advisors or like my committee or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, go figure that it would be uh, anything related to Palestine that then it's like the worst case scenario of the shit hitting the fan and people coming <laughs> out of the woodworks to talk shit unnecessarily in ways that it's just like, really, of all of the things, come on, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oof, wow. Uh, so I'm wondering what words of wisdom you might have to share with folks, especially uh, radical, whether it's BIPOC, women, femmes, uh, other marginalized organizers, activists, uh, folks considering grad school or having anything to do with the academic industrial complex. What would you say to them? Being intentional about making your home, you know, like what I was saying about, you know, building a, like a literal house where other people were living that weren't students. I think that was one of the things that to me was like, it like saved my life in a lot of times, especially because, you know, like there's a lot of processes that you go through in PhD school that are like super depressing and isolating. Um, and I think that making your home be in, you know, in like people who have shared values with you like that, that's something where you can where you come home or you call your friend and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm not losing it or whatever, you know, like I, mm-hmm. it's like a that like needed validation of other people being like, yeah, like I do the how the world is right now is not okay, you know, and mm-hmm. and like kind of that reminder, um, and also like to me having a home in like what my vision is, you know, and now, now that I have a passion planner, I'm like, I have a way to write this down, you know, but like, <laughs> but like in some way or the other, like, I feel like I've had in my mind a vision for what my end goal is here, you know, and to me, that's not, you know, maybe to some people it is to like, have a good paying job and to like, be able to support their families and like build a, a life for themselves. And that's totally valid. And that's, that is part of what I want. Like, I don't want my parents to like suffer like for sure or my siblings but I think to to me like the the middle of like my caracol of my of my vision of my life is liberation you know like I and that to me is like a core of what's pushed me through any of what I've had to do ever really and and grad school is kind of part of that is like having that core of what are you about and what do you want you know and I think that once you have that set for yourself and it's not like it's never going to change or whatever but I think a lot of the difficult things and like social like relationships with your peers and your advisors and conferences and all this stuff, like it doesn't like it doesn't matter how disheartening they are because at the end of the day you come back to that and you're like, yeah, like this is where I'm. And you know sometimes they might you might come back to it and be like, I don't need to be here anymore for this. But you know like to reach this core goal. Um, and other times you're like, oh, I can keep this going because it's not going against my goal. You know, so. Um, I think that was one of them. I think another word of wisdom is to, like, honestly just, I mean, it sounds corny, but, like, believe yourself. Like, I think there were a lot of mm. times when I had to push a lot. I mean, with specific things, right, where I was like, I don't I don't want to do that, you know? And then people would push at me. Like, my, there were a couple of things that, like, my advisors or other, other professors I met would push at, like, oh, your project should go in this way. And... I and I felt to myself and I heard myself say out loud like I don't think I should do that and then mm. you know like then I would go home and be like maybe I should listen to them you know like maybe they know what they're talking about but then being like you know no like I think that I think that I'm right you know mm-hmm. and um, not that you should never listen to the advice of your advisors or whatever but 
I think that there's a lot of ways in which, especially as like, like a brown femme, like I'm being convinced all the time that what I think or what I feel is not right. Like based yeah. on the like expectations or like the desires or whatever of other people. And to me that like, this has been one of those spaces where I've been like the most unapologetic of like, no, like this is what I, like I believe what I think about this, you know? Um, and in a way like that's kind of, I, and I, I hope that it doesn't become, and I, I ask, I'll ask my friends, including you, to, like, check me on that. And I hope that it doesn't become arrogance, because I think some people do, like, take that uh, building up of, like, I am right to the extremes. But I think that, you know, like, believing in yourself about what the right way to go is and, like, where you should draw your boundaries specifically about, you know, not going to sleep at 4 a.m. or not eating or whatever, like, those are things that, like, you really should believe yourself, you know, when you feel mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think maybe that's one, one of the other ones, too, is, like, like be nice to yourself. Like, I definitely spent a lot of my first year of grad school, like, not sleeping, not eating right, just eating a bunch of microwave shit. And I look back at it, and I'm like, oh, my poor self, you know? Like, <laughs> why did I do that to myself? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, like, in, in the academy, people promote that. Like, people are really about sharing their stories of self-deprivation you know Mm -hmm. like oh my god I only slept two hours last night how much did you sleep and I'm just like I slept seven you know like thank you exactly Uh, you know like nothing like I will not die if I don't finish reading the last two chapters of this book like I'm not gonna do that you know right um so I think that yeah definitely like be nice to yourself Mm mm-hmm yeah, the thing that you mentioned about um, refusing gaslighting is so important because if we don't believe ourselves, who's going to believe us, right? Probably a lot less likely that anyone else is going to believe us. And if you're in a place, right, to be either creating knowledge in the form of research or sharing knowledge with other folks in the form of teaching, how are we going to be doing that in integrity from a place of not even being convincing to ourselves, Uh, And so, yeah, there's definitely a huge difference in terms of power dynamic. If you ask me, you know, if someone has been socialized by virtue of their race, class, gender, nation, whatever it might be to automatically think that something they scribble on a napkin is golden compared to those of us that might actually have insight, but that have been told our whole lives systemically in all of these ways that we're not shit and that we don't have anything to say and that we shouldn't be talking. And when we do, people aren't even going to listen. Um, to then right come to a consciousness about worth and about voice uh, and about having something to offer to community from that positionality is totally incommensurate. You know, it's not like there's some kind of moral equivalence in the least on that front. And for sure, in terms of healing, can some people sort of like on a pendulum air to the other side of the extreme and then end up being arrogant. We know those people. We don't need to name names. But of course, yeah, there are definitely some of those people. Uh, but to right find balance and discernment, you know, so that then it's not just like I am ontologically fill in the blank whatever, but actually just being engaged in a process. Um, and if we're centralizing humility and curiosity, then you don't need arrogance because you know that you're constantly on a process of learning uh, and that if you know what you're talking about, you know that you know this much of yeah. all of the things. So it's kind of an impossibility, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just be humble, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, no, so believe humble. yourself, but, like, be humble about it. I, mm-hmm. I definitely, yeah, like, I definitely think that that's, like, a, a life lesson that, 
to me, it's like, to me, I'm like, I learned that shit early on, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like, you know stuff, but don't act like you know all of it, you know, like, that's, that's some basic stuff, you know, and I think that definitely being, being, like, part of this group of, like, badass women activists to me was, like, really humbling in that sense, especially because they were all, like, older than me, you know, so I, like, culturally, I'm like, I need to shut up most of the time, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, and I think that listening to their lives and, like, the work that they've been doing, I'm like, yeah, damn. Like, even all these folks who've done all this, like, amazing shit still, like, go about their lives with humility about what they do and who they are and, like, what they know. You know, like, then why the hell wouldn't I, you know? Thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah, having clarity about um, who our inspiration is derived from and not then letting, you know, that peer pressure bring you down in places where people are behaving poorly so to speak but being able to brush that off of you so much more easily because it's like clarity you're not my community I'm not accountable to you and you can you know make your ancestors embarrassed and you can reflect poorly upon your future generations and we're going to continue to do what we need to do right Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. for sure right uh, anything else around, say, self or community care that uh, you've experienced or that you intentionally created for yourself or maybe that you inherited because of the folks that have come before that created spaces for you um, that you might want to mention? So I would mention, for example, I remember that did you start a band when you were in your Ph.D. program? And then yeah. also I would want to mention the Women of Color Leadership Project, right? If you wanted to get into that, just two things I remember that we haven't gotten into so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think from like to start, I think even in my undergraduate work, like having um, like Dr. Lara, who I talked about earlier um or Irene I'm not supposed to call her Dr. Lada anymore um (laughs) how she just like that would always be reminding me like it doesn't look like you've slept you know like just things like that that to me I've like used that to reflect a voice upon myself of like yeah like I should sleep like this whole thing about treating yourself right um yeah the band thing I mean honestly it was interesting because the like me playing starting a band and like going on tour and all this stuff Like, I didn't even think of it as, like, oh, I'm going to, like, take a break from grad school sometimes. But it was just more of, like, a I really want to make music situation, you know? And, like, I hadn't played music since I was, like, in high school. So it was one of those things where I was, like, well, let's try this. And at the end of the day, like, became this, like, amazing, like, way to process and take a break from and pay attention to my body even, you know? Like, because when you practice and you're, like, in in a small room, you know, my housemates room with like a drum set and the guitar and singing and my bass, it was like this like physical release of like, oh yeah, you know, like the vibrations. <laughs> like, awesome. uh, uh-huh. To be like outside of my head and in my body, you know, which right. is again, like a core learning from this whole, um, this femtorship program that I was at was like, take a break, listen to your body and you know, like you'll be okay. You know, you don't, you can't not ever take breaks. So it was really fun to be, to engage that part of myself that like was about music and like I grew up a punk. So being, going on tour and like hanging out with all these other punks was like freaking amazing. Cause I was like, look at all these other people who like I used to spend a lot of time around and now I'm like, you know, like surrounded, not that like the people in school aren't cool, but you know, like a, a whole different <laughs> other people were doing so many different stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like it was pretty awesome and inspiring in its own way. So 
yeah, that was definitely like a self-care tool was playing music and hanging out with my bandmates and like eating, you know, like at random times of the night or whatever. Like that was just kind of like a cool part of my PhD process, like for like a year and a half or so. Um, the, oh yeah, the Women of Color Leadership Project. Yeah, like being in this, that was so amazing. I mean, thanks for telling me about it. Of <laughs> you course, were for sure. Like, you should apply. That was so um, good. Still is so good. Yeah, so I mean, the National Women's Studies Association has this project to kind of get uh, women of color um, in like in, engaged in like leadership positions in the association. And so that that project was amazing on its own right because it was like kind of a space to like talk, you know, like these like rare and precious spaces where people where women of color get to like just talk to each other about like this is what's going on and specifically people other people who are also going through PhD programs and like way different area like fields and air well I mean not that you know women's studies but like in different departments and places in the country um and talking about like all the kind of stuff that you go through and you know like at some points we were able to like vent about microaggressions and like can you believe this shit tell me this you know like (laughs) um, and like even just having that was like so like I don't know. I, I mean, like, I cried at the end of it. I was like, oh, that was so beautiful. Um, but also, like, making visions together of, like, what the future of women's study should look like. What is, like, where, where are feminist goals? You know, like, what do we want to get at? You know, having that collectively with a room full of all these women of color was freaking amazing. Like, uh, like an experience like I've never had before. So I think definitely, like, that's the kind of space where you feel, like, like, you feel like you filled yourself up with energy for, like, a long time to come, you know? And I think that's something that, that's another part of, of like, self-care is, like, having those kind of spaces and relationships that fill you up with energy and, like, love and inspiration and hope, kind of. Because, you know, like, a lot of the things that, like, we read about or write about, it's, like, shit that's really depressing and enraging. So being able to have those, like, experiences where that fill you up with, just like the the push or whatever, you know, to keep to keep doing the work that you do is like super invaluable. And that that uh, Women of Color Leadership Project was definitely one of those where you know. And I just finished this other program called the Environmental Fellows Program, and it was started by uh, Dorsita Taylor, who's like an an idol of mine of the like environmental justice movement, like a veterana. And she started this program to kind of get folks in, of color in like in, involved in environmental like grant making work. Um, but, and like, you know, like, I don't know how I feel about in the future being involved with that, but definitely the group of people that are, are doing like all these folks of color who are doing like badass, like social justice and environmental work and people who are like obsessed with lobsters, just like stuff, you know, like (laughs) stuff like that was like, it was like, again, like an experience of like, okay, I'm gonna fill myself up with this energy for right now to like go forward into the rest of the whatever. I mean, especially right now, right? Like the masses of the fuckery that are happening in front of us um it's like straight up survival you know like not even like not even just thriving but being able to survive like mentally spiritually and physically um like the like heteronormative capitalist patriarchy or whatever so Mm -hmm, for sure uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about any of the topics that we've been in dialogue about so far? Mm. One of the pieces that has been really important to me and that I've seen um, even like my environmental science, uh, like sometimes 
like intense place to be but something that they're really good at is collaboration and like supporting other people through their work so I think to me one of the things that I would encourage other people to really look out for is people who are down to share and like exchange your work because like having someone who will like look at your shit instead of waiting like for your advisor to be able to get back from their trip or whatever to read it like that literally gets you grants and you know like and resources or being able to get into a program you really wanted and like I think that offering that is kind of like the way to begin (laughs) that kind of process so I think that that was like a big in terms of like sharing and and collective building you know like in I had I already had experience with that in terms of like housing and like uh organizing and stuff but in the academy like that was one of the things that I really learned a lot about from was other people being willing to share their fellowship applications like I was able to get um fellowships from that like from being able to even know how to format a fellowship application like that's a big deal so being able to like look for people who are able to support you and that and then when you know some more about it tell someone else you know like Mm -hmm. I always am on my soapbox about like you should be applying to everything and let me send you my application materials so that you have an idea of what it's supposed to look like you know like I think that that is like a big part of being able to survive grad school is like ask for help and then when you have some help like share that help you know Mm -hmm. and it's like one of those like like uh values of like humanity or you know whatever (laughs) person but I think that in the academy especially where like there's so many unwritten rules that if you don't have parents who are like PhDs or whatever like you have no idea about that Mm -hmm. is like literally like of like uh like in Spanish you say like that's in un paro like you get like they really like help you be able to like go and actually do all this stuff that other people have way easier access to. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's something else I would share is like be down to help other people. If y'all, if you want to share my email, people can ask me for my fellowship applications. Like that's I'm down so to share nice them of you, for, for whatever, sure. Like, Thank you. Or whatever. Exactly. Um, right. You know, yeah. Like it's such a important part of being able to like, share what you've learned and you know ask for help and shit so exactly right uh not take for granted what knowledge and information and wisdom has been passed on to us and keeping it flowing and keeping it moving instead of again just hoarding the way that the dominant you know common sense using that term loosely would have us do but instead actually practicing the values that we believe in and the ethics that we believe in that we know better uh that it's actually really important uh to spread that around as best as possible so yeah thank you so much for that reminder that we can do that all the time Mm-hmm. All yeah. right. Well, I think that comes to the end of our time together. Thank you so much for your time, energy, and all the work that you do. Nice. Thank you, too, for uh, having me on. And I'm excited about listening to all the podcasts on here. You just heard from environmental scientist Dr. Carolina Prado about being a radical feminist BIPOC navigating grad school in the service of our collective transformation. If you decide to go to grad school, or are currently navigating that system, what can you do to make your experience as liberatory as possible and to reduce harm to yourself and others while there? Feel free to leave your musings in the comment section below. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. 
I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people.